so, you know, I, I'm interested in, in both the materials and the mechanics, uh, but where, you know, I see a lot of opportunities, particularly in this topic of architecture that you mentioned. Um, so recently, um, there's been a lot of work on architect materials or mechanical metamaterials where you use geometry, you know, to uh, create or uh, develop unique mechanical properties. And it's, it's always a question of, you know, is it a material if you're using geometry, right? We typically think of materials as, as being controlled by, you know, the, the types of elements they're made out of, right? We, we see that you can get unique properties if you use things such as geometry or heterogeneity, so combinations of materials. And I think as long as, you know, there's some architecture that, and there's some geometry that's below the length scale of the component you're looking at and, and well below the length scale of the component, I think we can still think of it as, as a material. I think we've been doing this for years in terms of composite materials where you often have, you know, some fiber or some uh, secondary phase embedded in a matrix. And the reason I, I, I find architecture so interesting is because you can design materials with unique properties. Um, so geometry is something that we can readily control via microfabrication, via additive manufacturing, via a variety of, of emerging digital manufacturing techniques, and we can do it deterministically. And so this gives us a, a tool um, to, to basically create structure that you know can lead to unique properties and we can design it with uh, quite a bit of confidence using established mechanics models of, of existing materials, things like finite element and other computational tools. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer by training. Um, I, I think of myself not as a roboticist. I know this is a soft robotics podcast, uh, but I really think of myself as a mechanical engineer that's interested in mechanics of materials. And my, my background and my training is actually in mechanics of materials for MEMS, microelectromechanical systems. And this field has evolved and it's... Uh, largely become a commercialized field uh, these days. And so it's not you know, that active of a research area in, in academia. But many of the sort of mechanics and materials topics, many of the concepts of sensing and actuation that are critical to MEMS readily apply to soft robotics. And because of this, uh, my group over the past uh, four or five years have really moved uh, quite strongly towards soft robotics. Maybe I want to ask you, since you mentioned mechanics, I want to ask you, when you looked at the material part, which is interesting from a mechanics perspective, 
the material itself or the structure or architecture. Because sometimes it's very interesting how the architecture itself can give it interesting behavior in terms of intelligence or including toughness, whatever the, the end goal. But for you, which is one interesting from mechanics, you think very interesting, the material itself, the properties, or the architecture, or the shape and morphology. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm interested in, in both the materials and the mechanics, uh, but where, you know, I see a lot of opportunities, particularly in this topic of architecture that you mentioned. Um, so recently, um, there's been a lot of work on architect materials or mechanical metamaterials where you use geometry, you know, to uh, create or develop unique mechanical properties. And it's, it's always a question of, you know, is it a material if you're using geometry, right? We typically think of materials as, as being controlled by, you know, the, the types of elements they're made out of, and the bonding between the, those atoms. Um, but more and more, right, we, we see that you can get unique properties if you use things such as geometry or heterogeneity, so combinations of materials. And I think as long as, you know, there's some architecture that, and there's some geometry that's below the length scale of the component you're looking at and, and well below the length scale of the component, I think we can still think of it as, as a material. I think we've been doing this for years in terms of composite materials where you often have, you know, some fiber, or some uh, secondary phase embedded in a matrix. And the reason I, I, I find architecture so interesting is because you can design materials with unique properties. Um, so geometry is something that we can readily control via microfabrication, via additive manufacturing, via a, a variety of, of emerging digital manufacturing techniques, and we can do it deterministically. And so this gives us a, a tool um, to, to basically create structure that you know, can lead to unique properties and we can design it with uh, quite a bit of confidence using established mechanics models of, of existing materials, things like finite element and other computational tools. So I think you need sort of interesting base materials as I'll call them, whether they be elastomers, polymers, hydrogels, um, these other types of materials, but to add new function, add unique properties, um, add embedded intelligence, as, as you mentioned, I really think you need to combine you know, these materials with architecture and really a, a deep understanding of the mechanics and the related physics for whatever phenomena you're, you're looking to, to work with, whether it be sensing or actuation or things like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to ask you, what, if you can recall some examples from architecture, it was very interesting, like increased toughness, whatever. What are maybe the interesting or maybe uh, very fascinating aspects when it comes to architecture that like can really give me changing in the design process to get certain behavior? Well, um, I think there are many examples in the literature. A lot of folks have focused on, um, you know, really uh, lightweight and stiff materials or lightweight and strong materials. I think for, for soft robotics, um, you know, there, there are different opportunities to create materials that maybe have unique mechanical responses or, you know, switchable mechanical responses. So my group has been very interested in creating surfaces with tunable adhesion. So if you want to stick to an object, you might want high adhesion in one case, but then you want to be able to turn that adhesion off. And there are various approaches. Many people have thought about this problem of tunable adhesion for, um, for really decades. 
And you can think about trying to do it via chemistry, right? By changing some bonding at the interface. This is really quite challenging, right? To find materials or systems where you can actively change the chemistry on demand. And so instead, um, we've taken an approach where, you know, we, we think about adhesion of an interface as essentially a bonded joint, right? It's uh, two materials in contact. And the load capacity of that joint, how much force that, that adhered contact can hold, um, depends on the bonding at the interface, but it's also highly sensitive to the stress distribution on the interface, how mechanical stresses are distributed across the interface. And what we found is that, you know, depending on how you structure the material on one side of the contact, say the surface of the gripper, and this could be architecture on the surface, it could also be architecture below the surface, so subsurface architecture, um, you can actually engineer that stress distribution very carefully and greatly change the load capacity of, of that adhered contact. And so um, you can create interfaces that, you know, stick via relatively weak van der Waals forces, but because you've designed the architecture carefully, you've uniformly distributed the stresses across the interface. And as a result of doing that, um, you've increased the load capacity substantially. So for example, in some very simple cases, we've shown that if you have a, a, a elastic pillar, right, which might be the building block, like a fibular interface for an adhesive gripper. If you have a simple elastic pillar, it has a relatively low detachment force because the stresses are really distributed non-uniformly. But if we embed a stiff material at a very specific location, a short distance from the interface, so basically at architecture, but rather than just through void space through a, a secondary material, we can increase the load capacity of that uh, up to seven or eight times. So you can increase adhesion strength through architecture. And then for active properties, you can then develop schemes where you can switch that architecture on demand, say by softening one phase in the material um, to go from a system where you have sort of stiff embedded materials in a very architectured or structured way to sort of soft uh, embedded phases. And as a result, you can then switch the adhesion. So I, I think architecture um, for soft robotics really allows you to design new functionality into the system. And, uh, tuning adhesion has, has really been something that we've been very interested in over the past few years. Mm -hmm, great. Maybe I want to go for the design when you to go for the architecture. The first point I want to ask you, if there's any maybe examples you have witnessed, very hard to explain in mechanics when you design them, but yeah, maybe you get the result for an FEM, but if you try to explain it from mechanical perspective, or mechanics perspective, it's quite challenging. Do you have any example like that, very challenging, we try to approximate the solution, but it's not really exactly what's happening. But there's an example like that. You know, many soft robotic material systems are composed of elastomers. And um, elastomers can have fairly complex behavior because they can stretch to large deformations. And the constitutive response, that stress strain response, isn't simply linear. And so uh, the starting point for a lot of finite element modeling and a lot of basic mechanics modeling is to treat the material as linear elastic. And if you just simply treat the material as linear elastic um, and you know, ignore um, some of this nonlinear behavior that you get with these elastomers, it can be quite hard to design the system uh, to perform as you expect. Or it might perform as you expect over a certain limited range where you're only applying small displacements and soft, small stresses 
but then you'll see the design, uh, the performance of the system quickly deviates from the design as, as you go to larger strains and, and larger forces. So I, I think designing with soft materials is inherently challenging because of this nonlinear behavior. Uh, another aspect of it is this uh, strongly viscoelastic behavior. And when we look at interfaces, um, we worry about both the rate dependence of the bulk material itself, but there's also some separate rate dependence of the interface. And so these time dependent properties can, can be very challenging to design to, and you really need to experimentally verify or validate the designs and also use those experiments to inform the models and improve them. I think one of the, the maybe the, the simplest examples is we've been talking a lot about this idea of dry adhesion. So basically Van der Waals forces say bonding an elastomer to an object. And I think we all know that if you stick a soft material on an object, it will stick. And you might sort of design some sort of interface that has geometry and has sufficient load capacity such that you can pick up an object and you can hold that object and you think everything is, is working well. But then if you leave that object hanging there for a while, it will eventually fall off. And so if you're just using simple, you know, elastic uh, mechanics and materials models, um, first order finite element or analytical models, you know, that they're not going to predict this time dependence. And so you need to sort of bring in this time dependence in your understanding of design. You need to bring in this nonlinearity and really characterizing this behavior in order to, you know, bring it into the design in models is, is quite challenging. So I guess when I think about designing uh, and sort of open challenges, I, I think certainly nonlinearity, uh, time and rate dependence. And then, you know, there are many new materials that are being developed very rapidly. And we often don't have detailed uh, constitutive models or detailed data available on these, these, these materials already. And so it's hard to do design. So I actually think, um, you know, there's a real opportunity when we're thinking about soft materials to think about using traditional mechanics models, uh, but to, you know, have frameworks, data-driven frameworks where we combine experimental data, NFP simulations or other mechanics models in an intelligent way to sort of update the models to be able to better predict the behavior. Um, when you're sort of doing classical engineering, you know, if you buy, you know, a certain type of aluminum, it has those properties and it's been well characterized for decades. Um, but a lot of these newer materials, and you can have many different versions of a, a single polymer, right? different cross-link densities, different curing parameters, whatever it might be, you know, can lead yeah. to very different properties. And it's hard to have a, a full library of material properties on all of these to do design. Your models are only as good as the inputs. And I think we, we still have a lack of input data for a lot of these materials that we work with. Thing do you think is missing when it comes to deploying architecture or understanding the mechanics? So you think something very, yeah, very important and still not really touch it in depth? Or maybe something you disagree, the way you approach it, you think, I don't, I don't really agree with this approach when it comes to mechanics or architecture in the material. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, at a high level, I see architecture is still a relatively new field. And so I think there are lots of unsolved problems and there's, you know, lots of opportunities. So, um, you know, I think there's lots of directions that can go to improve our use of architecture to get better performance, to, to be able to predict better. Um, 
in terms of you know what's what's really missing that's out there now um i don't know it's it's a hard question i i i think one thing that is is challenging is that we have advanced manufacturing techniques digital manufacturing techniques like additive processes that allow us to make structures with with architecture um but those processes aren't perfect and you know compared to some other manufacturing processes they probably have you know uh, rather high defect density. The geometries that you actually print uh, probably deviate quite a bit from sort of the, the CAD file, right? Just because the layer thicknesses and it depends on the process, but there, there are differences there. And I think when you're trying to build sort of systems where you're trying to engineer the geometry or architecture very carefully, you know, those defects and those deviations from the design can, can really add up. Right, and you know they can compound and really lead to significant deviation from the, the design you come up with. And so I think you know in order to address this, we either need um, one could address it through several ways, right? One could develop better manufacturing techniques, but that's hard, right? You're often limited by the physics of the process. We could develop better characterization techniques, right? Metrology techniques, such that we know what we're producing. And then we use the actual sort of geometries and sort of know what the defects are and incorporate those into the design. Um, or, you know, we could think about, you know, maybe designing, um, you know, with some uncertainty in the process a little bit more. And there certainly are approaches to do design where you incorporate, you know, uncertainty and variation in there. But I don't think we, we use it enough. Certainly my group um, doesn't do that uh, actively, but I think given the variability in some of these manufacturing processes and materials, I think in order to you know, make robust designs, one needs to, to consider this. Um, I think it's interesting that if you look at industries like the semiconductor industry, which um, you know, they can produce very small features, they can design incredibly complex devices. But I think one point that's underappreciated about that industry is um, in addition to sort of the manufacturing techniques and all the extensive modeling techniques, they also make extensive use of metrology tools. So they actually measure what they make because even though they're trying to make something with some dimension, it's often a little bit different. And if it varies from what you're trying to make, you, you need to know that. Um, and so it's really this loop of sort of making, measuring, and then you know, using that information to design better devices and using those measurements to also to control the process. And I think if we look at, you know, additive processes and other processes used to make uh, uh, soft robotics, for example, we, we don't do enough sort of characterization and measurement and sort of feedback for process control. And I, I think this is okay when we're building simple devices, right? But if we're, we're trying to, you know, build systems where, you know, we have complexity built into the material through the fabrication, I think this, this metrology or characterization aspect might be really essential, you know, to, to realize robust and high performance devices. I, I think it's an excellent question of, of what's missing. And um, I think there are many things, but I, I think coming back to this one point, this idea of making sure that when we design systems, when we design materials, we account for uncertainty and variation, I, I think is probably the thing that, you know, I don't think we, my group does enough of, and probably the community in whole doesn't do, do enough. When we speak about in what we do, what the first significant step do you think very important in the design process? If 
we consider certain geometry in the material? Is there something you should consider in the design process at first? Is it intuition before going to FEM? What is the thought process to make sure what you're doing is leading to certain feature? I think that's a really good question. Um, so if I go back to these examples of these adhesive interfaces with tunable adhesion, where we've designed subsurface structures that create high adhesion. Um, you know, we came up with that idea and we came up with the general approach through uh, some intuition of the system uh, by looking at sort of how existing interfaces fail and also looking at how um, some, uh, how adhesion has been improved in, in some examples like uh, biomimetic adhesive, so things inspired by the gecko. And I don't know that we would have come up with these strategies for uh, improving the adhesion of the interface through architecture if we didn't, you know, really understand the existing systems well and some of these other approaches that other groups were taking. So there was really some mechanics insight, some insight into the how stresses are distributed at the interface, how load is transferred um, that, you know, led us down this path. And, and you know, led to some of the initial designs. After we had that intuition, we then you know, did finite element modeling. Um, we um, did parametric studies looking at a variety of designs. And some of the final sort of optimal configurations that we found certainly did not quite match our intuition, but were along similar lines. But I don't think we would have designed the parametric study the way we did if we didn't sort of understand from a a basic mechanics perspective. And it's like an undergraduate mechanics materials perspective. It's not really advanced mechanics materials. It's something that, you know, I think students in my sophomore or junior classes should be able to see if they, if they thought about the problem. And so I think starting with, you know, some insight into, um, you know, just how stresses are, are transferred in a material, how deformations are distributed, and thinking about some of the very basic concepts to, to know whether or not, you know, you know, changing some type of geometry or material property should lead this one quantity to increase or decrease, for example. Um, you know, I often, you know, find myself as I'm doing thought experiments to think about designs, you know, just going back to very basic concepts of like equilibrium. And, you know, if I change this material property and it becomes softer, what, what should happen because I've made it softer? And it's, it's very useful to come back to that. So I, I think, you know, this, you know, some intuition and you know, deep understanding of the, the system and sort of the physics that controls the system you're looking at is, is really helpful in coming up with creative designs. But then once you have that, I, I think you can sort of push and use, uh, you know, tools such as computational modeling We've been doing some, <clears throat> some approaches with sort of machine learning-based optimization recently, um, but I, I don't think we could really set up the right problem, you know, to attack via machine learning to do this mechanical optimization without some basic insight into the problem first. So I, I guess, um, you know, I, I think it's, I always tell my students and I always have to remind myself too, like when I'm writing a proposal, that there's, a, you know, a, a a tremendous amount of knowledge out there in the literature. Um, you know, there are papers from, you know, uh, not just the past couple of years, but, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, where people, really smart people have thought about really hard problems for a long time and then wrote a paper. 
and you know just reading that literature really um you know understanding what others have observed it's always hard to find time to, to read those papers in detail it's sometimes hard to find the actual papers but really you know understanding you know what's what's there and you know trying to understand that such that you can develop some intuition to decide how to approach the problem and then once you have a basic approach a basic background then we can apply all these modern tools but i don't I don't I see a lot of potential for things like machine learning, but I, I don't see a world where we just you know, throw a problem at machine learning and, and it gives us the solution. You know, we still need the human in the loop, right, to sort of set up the problem, you know, put in some of the governing mechanics, really define what is the parameter space we're looking at. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Maybe a quick question. Is there something most maybe counterintuitive when it comes to the architecture? Maybe the result was counterintuitive to yeah the behavior yeah so i'm sorry to keep going back to the example of adhesives but again it's been on our mind for a while so it's the easiest one to go to um i, I think one thing that is counterintuitive about a lot of our uh, adhesive designs and others uh like mike bartlett who's at virginia tech uh, has showed this in, in other systems as well that you know, if you have uh, sort of an adhesive contact, you actually get increased load capacity, increased ability to carry force, the stiffer the contact is. And I say this is counterintuitive because whenever we think of things that are sticky, right? We always think of soft materials. Um, you know, tape, you know, has a, a very sticky, a very soft polymer on the, the surface. You know, these children's toys that sticks to the walls that are made out of silicone rubber are extremely soft. And so we think of things that are, are sticky and stick well as being soft. But if you look at the mechanics and you know, look at the concepts of fracture mechanics, you quickly realize that if you have two materials in contact and you try to pull them apart, you'll get higher load the stiffer the contact is. And um, so what you need to do to design you know, a high strength adhesive is you need to have a little bit of softness right at the end, right? So a soft material and a very thin layer on the surface such that you can conform to roughness. This is why we think of soft materials as sticky. But then, you know, aside from that soft material that you need to make that conformal contact and overcome roughness, you really want everything else as stiff as possible. And, you know, before we started looking at this, I think if you'd asked me, you know, if I had two pieces of material, if I was able to make contact, you know, which one would, would have higher adhesion strength. I probably would have, have you know, initially said the soft one if, if I didn't sit down and, and look at some of the mechanics equations. So um, I think that's, that's one example. So you, you want maybe some softness to get high adhesion, but if you can make that contact and overcome roughness, you really just want everything as stiff as possible. Um, yeah, and I think there are other, you know, examples in architecture where you know, there's some things where you think architecture might help, but at the end of the day, you find that you do the analysis, you do the modeling, and it just doesn't, right? So, um, you know, you really have to think carefully how to use architecture because um, if you're just looking at, you know, certain properties like strength or stiffness, um, whether or not architecture helps depends a lot on the, the geometry and the loading configuration. So architecture might hold great benefits if you're loading something in bending, 
right? Because stresses in bending are non-uniformly distributed. And so if you can put material where the highest stresses are, you can get big improvements in performance. But if you're just looking at simple, you know, tension or compression, for example, where the stresses are uniform, it's a lot harder to, to realize benefit from architecture. Um, you can in some cases, but sometimes your performance can just go down. So I, I think one has to, you know, be very, I guess, nuanced about how you're thinking about your problem, really understanding, you know, what is, what is the end goal? What is the loading configuration? And then develop strategies that uh, really use architecture. In some cases, you know, a simple solid material might just be better. Since we're close to a few questions, maybe the first one about the failure in the material. How do you see the architecture can really um, maybe delay damage? There's some research, but I've asked you if you imagine that material to be more tougher using architecture. How do you see the scope of the architecture to achieve material or structure that resists failure and be more redundant to damage? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And this is something that we have been looking at recently. So we, we thought a lot about it. Um, you know, at first thought, right, we think about materials failing from defects. And so if you start, you know, creating architecture, geometry in a material, putting voids, you know, to basically make this architecture, you would think that you might uh, make the material less tough or less damage tolerant because you're putting these defects in there. And in some cases, and some types of loading scenarios, that, that, that might be the case. Um, because whenever you have some sort of feature, a corner or a hole, um, you generate a stress concentration and this can lower the overall failure load of the material. But we've uh, seen in looking at fracture mechanics type problems where you have cracks propagating through materials that architecture can certainly yield benefits and improve toughness, uh, the, the fracture toughness or the damage tolerance of the material. And it, it does this for a couple reasons. Um, so one thing and the most important thing that, that we've seen in, in some of our work is that if you have architecture um, along a crack plane, right, along a, a path that a crack is running, the architecture um, results in additional compliance in the material, a lower stiffness near the crack tip. And what this does is it actually reduces the stress concentration at the crack tip. So fracture, when you have a crack running through a material, um, it's being driven by a very high stress at the crack tip, right, in the mathematical solution, there's an infinite stress. Um, and what we've shown in some recent work is that if you have architecture along the interface, say an array of pillars, a very simple architecture, you can actually reduce that stress concentration and distribute that stress over a larger area. So by adding, removing material, right, you know, creating voids to create these pillars, essentially, you can uh, redistribute the stress and increase the effective toughness of the material. The other just simpler benefit of architecture is that it can disrupt a crack from propagating. So, you know, going back 40 years to when people were investigating, you know, fracture of composite materials, maybe 30 years of fracture of composite materials, there was a lot of observations in the fracture of composite materials for aerospace materials that as a crack propagates from the matrix and interacts with the fiber, that the, the crack will be deflected along a different path or the crack might be arrested because of the change in, in material properties. 
And so uh, void space in a material can do something similar to that. And so architecture, if you have a crack running through a material, if it interacts with the void space, the crack then needs to reinitiate. And so it can improve um, damage tolerance in that way. Um, and so I, I think those are the, the two primary ways that architecture has been used to date to improve toughness. Um, again, redistribution of, of stresses near the crack tip and disruption of the crack, um, forcing it to reinitiate. Um, I, I think in terms of uh, redundancy, which was the other question you asked about, right? If you have a material and you load it and it starts to fail, can you introduce redundancy? I think that's, uh, you know, an excellent point and a, a really good opportunity. I think one thing that might be important there, because we've been thinking about this a little bit, is um, many architected materials are actually periodic structures, right? They just have a simple unit cell that's repeated over and over again. And when you have something like that, um, it's very possible to get, um, you know, collapse in one cell and then just get progressive collapse. Everything collapses at once because every cell is the same. But I think if you have uh, architected materials with a more disordered structure, um, so not a regular periodic structure, but you have this architecture in a disordered way, there might be more opportunity to engineer um, redundancy into the material uh, because, you know, when you have a periodic material, all the cells fail at the same stress, and it's very easy for something to propagate through. I think through disorder, you can create something that, that fails in a more gradual fashion, or perhaps redistributes the load when failure occurs. But I, I think it's just an area, it's an area where there's been some work uh, by, by a number of groups, but I, I think it's an area where there's a lot yet to be done. Mm -hmm. That's very excellent. A few questions left to the first one. What other question do you think still very interesting to you personally? You still want answer in this research line in architecture. Other questions or yeah, or something you wish you can achieve to architecture? Yeah, I, I mean, so the area that I'm really excited about right now is combining architecture with active materials. So uh, for whether it be sensing or whether it be actuation, right? Integrating materials in soft robotics or traditional robotic systems that, uh, you know, convert, you know, an electric signal to a mechanical signal or vice versa is, is really crucial. And, and uh, you know, much sensing is done through, you know, fairly simple structures of like piezoresistive materials or piezoelectric materials embedded in, in, in in the actual structure and similarly for actuation. And I, I think you, there are some examples out there of architecture being combined with active materials to get improved sensitivity, embedded intelligence, um, better actuation. But I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, uh, just, I, I think a lot of active materials, things like piezoelectric say, often don't generate the strains or the displacements that, that we need for certain applications. But I think if you combine those inherent uh, properties of the material, those intrinsic active properties of the materials with architecture and geometry, you can potentially design much higher performance systems. So uh, a lot of the things that we're thinking about now are really at this intersection of uh, active or, or sensitive materials and, and architecture. Uh, one limitation there so far has just been printing techniques. Um, there are far fewer printing techniques that can print 
high quality piezoelectric. There, there are some examples out there, high quality sensing materials, but I would like to see sort of new manufacturing techniques that really give us much better control to combine active materials with structural materials and print active materials with more complex structures uh, because some of the, the modeling and computation we've done really suggests there's some interesting opportunities for uh, much higher performance systems. So that's that's one. I think the other thing that is is quite intriguing and I think is a constant challenge in soft robotics and, and many other types of systems is just um, you know how you uh, store energy and how you power these systems. And again, I think as we start thinking about systems that are made up of materials that are heterogeneous and some architecture or structured way. I think there's, you know, interesting opportunities to integrate, you know, energy storage, um, power sources directly in the materials along with these active materials. Um, these are sort of longer term goals, right? Um, but I, I think they're things that are really needed to, to move the field forward. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Last question is, what makes you fulfilled and satisfied when it comes to what are you doing? What makes you fulfilled? Um, makes me fulfilled. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I love teaching um, uh, both, you know, formal classes and uh, just teaching through uh, advising PhD students, postdocs, undergrads and research. Um, you know, when I, I look back and we always think about impact, right? Academics love to talk about impact. And we, we look at things like number of citations, we look at like impact factor uh, of different journals we publish in, and those are important. But, you know, one of the most satisfying things and, you know, makes me feel fulfilled is when I see students that either I taught in class or, or trained in my lab uh, doing great things um, in the world, whether it be in academia or industry. You know, most of my PhD students over the years have gone to industry. And just seeing about seeing the contributions they've made to moving technology forward. And um, you know, I love looking at at LinkedIn. You know, where I'm connected with many former students from classes in my research group, and, and seeing their updates, and just seeing uh, you know how they're having impact in different fields. And so I you know I, I love publishing the papers. I, I love getting the next grant. But if I, if I think about you know the career you know, the academic career as a whole, I, I think it's really the impact you have on training of, you know, great individuals um, that, that go on to do great things uh, because just the impact is much broader than one person can ever have, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to ask you the last question. Is there something you wish you know maybe in retrospect that when something wish you know in your career or maybe in this research line? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that I, I've learned over the years that if I look back and how I did things and, and how I would do them now based on what I've known. So it's hard to say. Um, you know, one thing that I'll just, I'll never forget is, you know, I went to undergraduate to, to get a degree in mechanical engineering. And I, I really knew nothing about academic research. I mean, I, uh, I was from a relatively small town and I just had no exposure to um, academic research or the fact that, you know, you go to a college and there are people doing research plus teaching. I thought you just went there to, to teach. And I had no inkling, inkling that I would get involved in research. Um, but um, a faculty member, you know, in the department said, I, I need somebody to work in my lab. Are you interested? 
and you know that experience you know put me on a path that eventually led to grad school and, and a faculty career and so you know i wish i had known earlier right about you know all the great things that you know you can do in, in terms of research and in this career path because i, I might have started earlier in undergrad um and i, I just I, I would encourage you know any undergraduate students to you know take advantage of wherever they are, are going to school learn about research and you know see opportunities because it's just i just remember you know i just never expected such opportunities and i, I thought i would go to college and just simply you know get a get a job after a bachelor's degree and so um i think just you know people should be aware of of, of opportunities and you know just make the most of whatever institution uh they're at because there's almost certainly an opportunity to do something related to research um, at any undergraduate school anywhere that's a great point i don't know if you have any final words would like to say for people listening any final words would like to say no, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be here um, and, and chat with you. I really enjoyed your questions. Um, you, you made me think about some some ideas about architecture and stuff that I, I hadn't put together. And so I'm really glad that you, you followed that, that line of questioning and brought up that topic. It was really fun.